This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Thank you, uh, Greg and the girls. I appreciate that. Um, let's just uh, still our hearts, bow our heads. and Father, here we are again opening your word, and here we are once again recognizing that this is a bigger task than what I'm up for unless you help me. Or this is... Uh, something I can't do on my own, but Father, you've brought us together and um, we're going to look at the book of Ruth and I pray that you would just give us insight, motivation, conviction, meet us at our point of need. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Book of Ruth will provide the foundation for our lesson today. We are going to wrap up our series right in your eye. Um, if you're just joining us today, sorry, you're late for the movie. Uh, no worries, you can go to our website and you can find the entire series there as well as other past series um, that, that we've given. Um, you ought to know this by now, but the period of Judges covers about 330 years or so. And this is where Israel did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And the result of this was a cesspool of wickedness and idolatry. And I was thinking about that this past week, and really our country is not too far behind that period of time. We have very few absolutes that anchor us. Our attitude is pretty much don't judge me, I won't judge you, what's right for me may not be right for you, but it's all good. You know, we just need to love each other and we just need to tolerate each other. And Israel, for over 300 years, that was their philosophy. And as a result, they went through periods of extreme darkness. But what is so amazing is that in that very, very dark time, God, in His grace and mercy, didn't slam the door on Israel. And aren't you glad... That in your disobedience, in your rebellion, in your sin, in your nonsense, and mine as well, that God didn't slam the door on us? The focus of our lesson today will be how right in the middle of that political and spiritual chaos, and this is so cool, God behind the scenes was preparing the world for the very first Christmas. Now I realize that it seems a bit early to talk about Christmas, but here we are, mark it down, October 14th. I give you, I'm giving you my Christmas sermon for the year. So when Christmas rolls around, we'll probably talk about gluttony or tithing or another popular subject like that. Now if you grew up in church, you know a little bit about the book of Ruth, but what you may not know is that the story of Ruth took place during the period of Judges. And so what we've been talking about the last couple of months, uh, where, where there's been chaos and mass murders and mutilation, remember the first lesson where that lady was cut up into 12 pieces and sent across the country? Mutilation, remember attempted genocide, deviant sexual behaviors, idol worship, That, that all of that chaos right there, the book of Ruth, takes place right in the middle of that. And the story of Ruth is a bright spot. It's like an aberration. It's an exception right in the middle of that chaos. And 
And I'll just tell you, after a couple of months of this nonsense that we've been talking about, I am so excited to be able to focus on some good news for a change. And this is really, really super cool. Let's, let's roll. We've got a lot to cover. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, NIV reads like this. In the days when the judges ruled, so there it is, the period of judges, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, let me just show you a map here. This is the map of Israel. Here's the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, Jordan River again. And right here is Bethlehem. And so evidently there was a severe famine that took place right in this area. And so this family decided to relocate. And I'm assuming that they probably went up here and crossed over the Jericho or, or the Jordan River and came down here and relocated in Moab. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Well, once in Moab, things didn't go so well. Tragedy struck. Verse 3. Now, Limelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So poor Naomi, try to picture this, she now is a single mom to her two boys in a foreign country. The boys grow up, verse 4. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And, and just a reminder, and I've, I've reminded you always oh, a few weeks ago, but the law of Moses stated that the Israelites were not supposed to marry foreign women. And this was not a racial thing, but when you married someone from another country with another religion, you generally got their gods. You generally got their idols. Nevertheless, the boys fell in love with Moabite women, got married. Tragedy struck again. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Killian also died. It makes you wonder what happened. You know, did a disease come through? What, what took place? We don't know. They died. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So again, put yourself in Naomi's shoes. So she, she has to feel incredibly alone. She, she's a Jewish woman in a foreign and pagan country. Her husband died. Her two sons have now died. She has no blood relatives there. The only people she can halfway call her family are her two, two daughters-in-law, and they're Moabites. So as many people do, when, when tragedy comes, Naomi becomes bitter, and she begins to blame God. I mean, she says it's obvious that, that God is against me. Yeah, yeah, I still believe there is a God, but barely. I mean, I've tried to serve him throughout my lifetime. He no longer answers my prayers. He's abandoned me. And you may not admit this publicly, but I think there are several of us. We've probably been closer to that than what we realize. We think, God, man, I've tried to be faithful to you. Where are you? I've been praying for years. Where are you? God, you've abandoned me. So Naomi is there and she makes a decision and, and she decides that it's time to cut her losses and leave Moab and go back to her country. So she says to her daughters-in-law, look, you know, I'm sorry, I, I feel kind of responsible because I, in a way I got you into this mess. You know, I brought my boys over here. They fell in love with you. You fell in love with them. They both died. Now you're young widows, both of you. I, re I feel responsible for this. So girls, I'm going west. 
I'm going back home to Bethlehem. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to release you because there was that sense of responsibility to her. And so she said, I'm going to release you from your responsibilities to me as as your mother-in-law. And therefore, you will be free to stay here in your own country. You can do a personal reboot. Start your lives all over again. Well, how'd they respond to that? In verse 14, at this, of course, the daughter's-in-law, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah accepted the release, the release, kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth said, Mom, I'm going with you. You're not leaving without me. Well, Naomi argued back and, and said, Sis... You know, think about this. Your your sister-in-law in in verse 15 is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. In other words, it doesn't make sense for you to pull up roots to go with me. I mean, you're going to be a foreigner there in my country. And But then in one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, Ruth says this, verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will. I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so picture this in your mind. You have Naomi. By now, she's an older Israelite widow. You've got Ruth. She's a young Moabite widow. Together, they make the long journey. Again, showing you on the map. They're right here in Moab. So they either go around here, Or they go around here or they swim across the Dead Sea, probably up there, and they come back down to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. Well, they survive the journey, get into Bethlehem. People begin to look at this older woman and they begin to whisper, is that Naomi? She's aged a lot, but I, I think that's her. But wait a minute, who's that girl with her? I mean, last I knew, Naomi Naomi only had two boys, no girls. So maybe it isn't Naomi. But boy, it sure looks like her. Well, they find out that it is indeed Naomi. And they come to her and they say, Naomi, it's been years since we've seen you. Good to see you again. How's the rest of the family? Listen to what Naomi says in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Well, why are you bitter? I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. In other words, I went away from here with my family, my husband, my two boys. My husband died. Both of my boys died. So why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You know what she's saying? The same thing that many of us have thought. God has abandoned me. He no longer hears nor answers my prayers. But here's what is so fascinating. 3,500 years later, today, we know her name. Naomi is one of the very few women in this period of history... 330 years there whose name and story has survived because, listen, God had not abandoned her. In fact, this is so exciting. Man, I'm glad to be preaching this message instead of one of the others. But 
he was getting ready to place her at the epicenter of the beautiful story of Christmas. So, Naomi and Ruth got back to Bethlehem. It happens to be barley season, and this is pretty significant to the story, so let me explain a little bit about that. There would be wealthy landowners who had acres and acres and acres of barley, and during the harvest season, they would send their servants to harvest the barley. Now, here's what was significant is, according to the law of Moses, during each harvest season, the landowner could only harvest their fields one time. Well, you say, what does that mean? Well, they harvested everything by hand. And so there would always be some barley that would accidentally fall to the ground. Maybe they would miss a stalk here or, or a clump of stalks here and there. And, and so in other countries, what they would do, the servants would go back through the fields a second time, sometimes a, a third time, trying to get all of the barley. But for the Israelites, the law stated they could go through the fields one time. And here's the reason. The reason was so that the barley that they had accidentally missed would be available for poor people and for widows. And this is really interesting. This right here was one of the ways that they took care of their poor. And the law made provision for the poor. But, but, but the difference here is that this was not a handout. This was not like, well, I'm poor, so you owe me. Or, or, or this was not, okay, servants, go get the leftover grain, take it to the doorsteps of the poor people and the widows. No, the law made provision for poor people, but they had to gather it and work like everybody else. And this system was, was designed so that, yes, the poor would be provided for, but by them having to gather it and work, it helped Here's what it did. It helped keep laziness and dependency and idleness in check. And it helped prevent the enabling of future generations who would do nothing and expect to be supported in that lifestyle. Maybe someone should send an email to our government and suggest this system they're just saying. So Naomi said to Ruth, you know, we've got to do something to put food on the table. So why don't you join the poor people and the widows going to one of the fields that's being harvested and try to pick up enough grain so we can have a little bit of supper tonight. So Ruth does that. She goes into a field that at that time she thought was just a random field. Hey, I'll just pick this one. Now, let me remind you that this was a very male-dominated society. Ruth was a foreigner. From Moab. So her going into the fields to glean barley as a foreigner was really risky business. She could be assaulted. She could be sexually assaulted. She could be harassed. In fact, she could be kicked off the property. As a foreigner, all of these were real risks. Well, it just so happens that the quote-unquote random field that she chose belonged to a man by the name of Boaz. Now, what's so fascinating about God and the way he orchestrates things is that Boaz, as we will find out, happens to be a distant relative of Naomi's late husband. Well, when Boaz goes out to his fields, he sees this foreign woman out there with all the poor people and the Israelite widows. And he's, he looks and he points, who's that, who's that woman over there? I mean, she's a foreigner. I don't recognize her. And Kind of scans the field said, I think I recognize most everybody else because they're here year after year and, and most of them are locals. And 
I don't think I've ever seen that, that foreign woman over there. Who is that? And they said, well, her, her name is actually uh, Ruth. And she's the daughter-in-law of, of Naomi, you know, the lady that just came back to town after being away for many years in Moab. And, and Boaz is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've heard about her. In that tight-knit community that the story had already circulated about this Moabite woman who had chosen to remain faithful to her mother-in-law, even though it meant leaving her family and, and country. And Boaz was impressed with what Ruth had done. And here's what he said to, to Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, verse 11. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before and... And listen to this, because this is so out of character with the prevailing attitude. Remember this time, they barely believed in God, and they certainly did not follow God. So this is kind of out of character. But he said, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And by the way, this is the very God that Naomi had assumed had abandoned her, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Boaz is saying, I still happen to believe that there is a God. I still happen to believe that God respects those who make honorable decisions like you did, Ruth. So Boaz says to his servants, hey, you know that foreigner from Moab over there? I know that sometimes foreigners come around here and they try to take advantage of our goodwill. You know, we've got a system of generosity and, and, and they take advantage of that. And, and, and so I know you guys, I, I know you harass them at times and I know you even run them off. But listen to me, don't you dare bother that lady over there. Leave her alone. Let her take all the grain she wants. In fact, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to kind of take some of the stalks of barley that you've already harvested and, and just accidentally, you know, just, just kind of drop a few clumps here and there for her. Understand, she's not just another foreigner who has wandered into our land trying to take advantage of our generosity. She is an honorable woman who made the long journey with her mother-in-law to care for her so you treat her with respect. Well, as a result of that, Ruth went home that evening having made a haul. She gets home in Ruth chapter 2 verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? And then it was like she saw all that she had. She said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. You know, you came back with so much more than I expected. And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said, and the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and, and, and the dead, of course, her, you know, her dead husband. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Well, it appears that some time goes by and Naomi's getting older and Ruth is getting older. And so one day Naomi says, Ruth, you've been so faithful to take care of me, but I know that one of these days I'm going to die. And as a foreigner in this country, you will be totally alone. And so before I die, I want to help find you a protector. In other words, she was saying, Ruth, you need to get married. So Naomi follows the proper protocol in this situation about, and goes about finding what is called a kinsman redeemer. 
Now, the best way to think of a kinsman redeemer is to think of your rich uncle. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody has a rich uncle or at least uh, someone in your extended family that's got more money than Trump or more money than what they know what to do with. And, and so when you have a financial problem and you need to borrow money and you may not actually go to them, but you think, you know, if we could just call so-and-so my rich uncle or, you know, he's my wife's brother's cousin, sister's fourth husband or, or whatever. And, you know, he's just filthy rich. And, and so the kinsman redeemer was a wealthy person in an extended family. And, and in this culture, a kinsman redeemer did not have to step in and help. But many times they did. And there were several things that a, a kinsman redeemer could, could be asked to do. They, they could be asked to help a poor relative by giving a loan or maybe helping pay some bills or buying back a piece of property that maybe they had lost because they couldn't make the payments. But the other thing that a kinsman redeemer could do, and this only took place on rare occasions, rarely did this ever happen, but, but maybe a male relative had died and there was no other male relative to carry on the family name. And so the kinsman redeemer could step in and marry that person to make sure that someone's family tree didn't stop. Now, when you think of finding a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, the chances of that happening are slim and absolutely none. Because Ruth is not Jewish. She's a Moabitess. She's a foreigner, which brought about a lot of stigma in that day. But Naomi says to Ruth, we need to find a kinsman redeemer. And from my knowledge, you know, as I've been researching it, I, I think it needs to be Boaz because I believe he's the closest kin that I have. Now, hear me out here. In, in our very highly sexualized American culture, when people read about what took place and how Naomi and Ruth went about seeing if Boaz would become the kinsman redeemer, they jumped to all kinds of false conclusions. And I'm not going to read about this because you actually had an assignment to read this two or three weeks ago. Uh, but, but they jumped to false conclusions because they're picturing this young and probably good-looking Moabite woman who comes in here. And, 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 and you've got, you know, Boaz, who is probably 65 years old plus, And his wives are probably kind of old and wrinkled and worn out. And, and uh, you know, people picture this young Moabite chick coming up to Boaz and making some moves on him and flirting with him. And he's flattered that a young, good-looking woman would pay attention to an old man like him. And, and all of a sudden, he gets excited. And he says, hey, babe, are you saying you want to hook up tonight? That, that's kind of our assumption today. But that's not the way it was. Not, not even close. This story does not have sexual nor suggestive innuendos. In fact, the opposite is true. Because this was a very risky venture for anyone to become a kinsman redeemer, especially for foreign women. Because once a man became a kinsman redeemer, not only were they responsible, was he responsible for the woman, but they were responsible for the children if there were any. And so this was a risky decision for a kinsman redeemer. But Ruth, in this powerful narrative, and, and again, I'm going to let you read it on your own at home and but in the most appropriate way that fit that culture, and it doesn't fit our culture today, you know, reading this in our sex-crazed culture, we automatic, uh, automatically assume less than holy intentions. But in this way that was totally culturally appropriate and holy, 
Ruth goes to Boaz, knowing that he could say no and probably would say no. I mean, it's one thing to let her glean in the field. It's one thing to protect her from abuse and assault, but to marry her and bring her family and all the liabilities. You don't even know the family on the other side of the Dead Sea. Who knows? The whole tribe could show up on the doorstep. And so Ruth knows that more than likely Boaz will say no. But nevertheless, she goes to him. And, and in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, says, I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you're a kinsman redeemer. Oh, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I, I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. And then listen to this. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. So Boaz says, bless you, you're, you're a woman of noble character, but there's one small hitch to your request. Uh, the hitch is that Naomi has a relative that's closer to her than me, and by law, he gets first dibs. He gets the first right of refusal. But he says, I'll, I'll go to the other relative and see what I can work out, and and again, you can read the details for yourself. He goes to the city gate because that's where all the major transactions take place. There are witnesses there. He meets this with this man that's a nearer kinsman. And, and, and he says, you know, Naomi through Ruth has asked me to be the kinsman redeemer, but you're actually a closer relative. So I'm giving you first dibs. I'm giving you first choice. Now, something else that comes into the story, and it's not real clear, but Naomi's late husband evidently, at one time had owned a piece of property. And, and, and so we don't know if during the famine that things got tough, they lost it, or maybe the years that they were gone over in, in uh, you know, Moab, that the squatters came and, and maybe took over the land. We don't know. But, but there was a property, and, and he tells the man, you're the closest of kin, so you have first dibs. And the man said in Ruth chapter 4, verse 4, well, I'll redeem it. He says, of course, I'll redeem the property. Sounds like a good deal. Sounds like a, 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 a good investment. But, but then Boaz adds this little detail in verse 5. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So, yes, you get the property. That's a good deal. But you will also get the Moabite woman. And furthermore, you've got to have kids with her at least attempt to. And if she happens to have a son, that son will get an inheritance out of your estate. Are you willing to do that? And, and that changed everything. And look how he changed his tune in one verse. Verse 6, at this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And again, the man was probably thinking, yeah, Ruth comes with a, a good reputation, but I don't know what her crazy family's like on the other side of the Dead Sea. And I don't know who's going to show up on my doorstep once they're married and, and it's going to make family gatherings really awkward and nobody's going to accept her. And yes, she speaks our language, but she has an accent. So Boaz, you take her and you can have the property. Well, by the way, you're not going to get out of here at 12 o'clock, okay? I'll just tell you right now. So quit dreaming. Um, the man, uh, long story short, Boaz marries Ruth. 
And, and that would really make a great ending to the story. You know, Boaz, one of the few honorable men in that day, does the honorable thing, takes a risk with a Moabite woman in order to make sure the distant relative has a covering the family tree is kept intact. End of story, great story. Thanks for coming. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful day. But you're really not dismissed. Because the story's not over. In fact, the story, we've got to cover several hundred years before we got to get out of here today. The story gets better. It's so awesome. And, and honestly, in my office this week, as I was studying, I got chills that went up and down my spine. And my eyes even leaked a little bit of water as I studied this. And, and here's what happens. This is so awesome. Ruth and Boaz are married. They have a son. They name him Obed. And there's just little sweet part, if you read the book of Ruth, where Naomi, by now she's pretty old, and Naomi's holding little baby Obed. And she looks at this baby and essentially says, I gave up on God. I decided he had abandoned me. Didn't think he answered my prayers anymore. But I was wrong. God is good all the time. And now I've seen him continue my family tree. And God has allowed me to live long enough to where I'm holding my grandbaby. Some time passes. Naomi dies. Boaz dies. Ruth dies. But that son named Obed grows up and is married. And he has a son as well. Obed's son is named Jesse. Jesse has a whole bunch of sons. And one day God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he says, Samuel, I'm about to do something new in the nation of Israel that will have ramifications for thousands of years. I need you to take your horn of oil and go anoint a king. Let me just read it for you. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And, and so there you have Jesse, the son of Obed, Obed, the son of Boaz, who took a risk and married a Moabite woman in an era when it seemed like God had abandoned the nation. Samuel shows up and he says, Jesse, line up your line up your sons. God has chosen one to be king. Jesse lines them up and and Samuel looks at the oldest and I mean, he looked like a king and God said, nope, it's not him. He looked at the next one and God said, nope, not him. And the third one and nope, not him. And he went down the line God said no to all of them. And, and Samuel was like kind of scratching his head. And he said, I know I had the right house. Um, are you sure you don't have any more sons? And, and Jesse said, yeah, I, you know, I got the youngest. He's out in the fields. But I'm just telling you up front, he's not king material. And Samuel says, I will not sit down until you bring him in. Wow, I don't know if I can get through this or not, but into the pages of history steps David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite who is faithful to her mother-in-law. 
Years go by and another prophet, Nathan, appears to David and he speaks on behalf of God. And here's what he says to King David in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 17. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from this prophecy, a king was promised that would reign forever. And he would come from the line of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. And David indeed had a son. Who had a son, who had a son, and 25 pregnancies later, or in the words of the King James Version, 25 begats later, according to the gospel writer Matthew, 25 begats later, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, was born on Christmas Day. Now, here's the amazing thing, and, and stay with me, this is huge. This king, this king did what no other king ever thought of doing. Instead of requiring his followers to die for him, he would turn it all upside down and lay down his life for his followers. And because of that, here's the amazing part. Whereas it took God hundreds and hundreds of years to prepare to set the table for that very first Christmas. Here's the amazing part. And that is that you, 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 in a single decision, in a single moment, you could become part of this story. You could become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. You, in a single decision, can take the entire story of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years preparation and with one single decision become part of the family of Jesus Christ when you yield your heart to your Savior, the King, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we, consider, as we conclude this series, here's, I'm just going to be flat out honest here. I want to make it available for you to consider doing that and instead of doing what they did during these 300 years do what i want to do when i want to do it with whom i want to do it change it around and say god i recognize you as my king and i want to yield the throne of my heart to you but unlike every other king he will not force you to submit you know the bible says this in revelation 320 here i am I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to open that door. Maybe you don't know what it is. Maybe you weren't raised in church. I want to give you that opportunity to say, yes, here I am. And understand it's more than just going to church. It's more than just being baptized. It's more than just being a good boy or a good girl. But... It is actually opening your heart and allowing Jesus to come in and cleanse you, forgive you, and you becoming part of the family of God. I also want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you have strayed away. Maybe there's some people here today that you, uh, you knew what it was at one point, but you know what? Life hits you in the face, and you're kind of like... Naomi, you're a little bit bitter, a little bit confused, and God didn't seem to answer your prayers, and so you began to back off from God. Could I just invite you to come back to God today?
And so I want to pray and let's not worry about the time and I don't, I'm finished now, but I want to pray and, and just ask God to give us courage to do what we should do. And then I want to give you that opportunity to come to him. Would you bow your heads? Father, I want to just come to you right now and I want to just ask you that you would give the courage. Lord, thank you for this amazing story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Lord, thank you for setting the table for that first Christmas. Lord, that took hundreds and hundreds of years. But Lord, here today, in a moment, in an instant, whenever our hand of faith reaches up and grabs onto your hand of grace, Lord, there in an instant, in a split second, we can become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. We can become a child of the King. And Lord, I pray for those here today that maybe they don't have that background. And Lord, I know in this area, it seems like everybody knows God. Everybody's godly, and even though they aren't, but yet we've been led to think that just by virtue of our living in this community and by virtue of our being Americans, that, that we have it made. But Lord, I pray that today you would give us a glimpse of where we truly are right now, this very instant. And so Lord, without a lot of fanfare, I just pray that you would just come in and convict and Lord, would you just do a work in our hearts today that we would become part of the lineage of Christ as a child of Jesus. Give us courage, I pray in your name. I'm going to ask you to stand and just be praying here. You know, at this church, we don't care whether you come forward, whether you do it back there, but I believe there's something that solidifies it whenever we come and make a public confession here, not out loud, but yet we just come forward. Maybe there's someone here that would like to come and say, you know what, I don't really know what it is. I've never done this before or I've strayed away and you want to come and just kneel here. I want to give you that opportunity and you don't confess your sins to me. You don't say it out loud. You confess them privately to Jesus. He's the one that forgives. I'm not the one that forgives. Anyone, you want to just come and Maybe while you're trying to get up the courage, heads bowed, eyes closed, there's somebody that would say, Pastor, I'm going to be flat out honest with you. I'm not sure where I am right now. Kind of like Naomi, just a little bit confused. Anybody want to lift your hand and just say, that's me? Pray for me. Anybody? Just pray for me. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Anybody else? Just be honest right now. Anybody else? Pray for me, Pastor. You know what? I'd love to just pray with you and it's a scary thing, but maybe you just want to grab the, the arm of the person right by you and say, would you go pray with me? And again, this is all private. You just talk to Jesus and we'll gather around you so it's not so awkward you being the only one. But is there somebody here that just wants to take care of things with God today? Would you just take this opportunity to fix it up with Jesus? Anybody? We're not going to wait long. I don't believe in just pulling and pushing and threatening and scaring and all of that. I just want to make it available whenever you are ready. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.